9to5.cc. We're not working. Why should you? Thanks for listening. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Go Plug Yourself podcast. This week, Alexis Diamond is bringing a definite air of class to the show. After all, it's not every day that you get to speak to someone nominated for a Governor General's Literary Award. I suppose it's not every day that you get to speak to someone who can honestly refer to themselves as an opera librettist either. Uh, Alexis was nominated in the category of translation for her work translating Pascal Brudemann's Amaryllis and Little Witch, uh, a set of two dark fairy tales celebrating strong young female characters. Uh, personally, I've always been fascinated by the art of translation. If you want to give yourself just a taste of how translations can vary from one to another, uh, check out the Proemic Verse column in the translations of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. I linked to it actually in the blog post to see just how different uh, an original text can be interpreted, how many different ways. Uh, yeah, it's that kind of podcast. We're so happy to have Alexis. We're so um, happy that someone from Montreal was nominated for such a prestigious award. And it was really interesting to talk to someone in a field of arts that we usually don't have on the show. Uh, so sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and learn a little bit about the art of translation with Alexis Diamond. Go plug yourself, everybody. Two, one, hit it. Go plug yourself. You plug another plugger. Go plug yourself. You plug another plugger. So, uh, just so everyone at home knows, uh, Ines, we're recording now. <laughs> the podcast has started. You don't need to get mad like 15 minutes from now. I'm at telling us, can we start yet? Um, our guest this week, I was really excited. And I'm also really excited that Ines uh, jumped on as co-host for this one. Because with, with all due respect to Lawrence and uh, Vendito, I feel you probably read more books. <laughs> Just it's, in general. Listen, it's very possible, but yeah. who can say, you know? Who can I, say I don't want to make a hundred, like, too many assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, neither of them seemed as excited as I did as to have a uh, someone who was nominated for a Governor General's Literary Award, except for maybe you yourself, Ines. So. Oh, yeah, I was absolutely very excited, yeah. So yes, our guest this week is Alexis Diamond, nominated for the Governor's General Literary Award in the category of translation. So there'd be a round of applause if this was some sort of a live show. Uh, and uh, uh, Alexis and I were talking about before we started about this. I've been like a, I've been like a closet translation nerd <laughs> for a while. One of my very good friends, Sam is a translator. I also took a course in uh, at Concordia where we studied, where like it was a literature and history course where we studied multiple translations of, like I said, I can't remember if it was Iliad or Odyssey, one of the two Homer ones, multiple translation of it over the course of history, essentially. And it was like, and part of what we were studying was also just sort of like how the world history at the time was informing the translation. So I've, I just, I've always been like, Translation is like the coolest and everybody's like, it's why do you have someone who does it? It's just Google Translate. And you're like, no, no, man, there's there's so much more. <laughs> so I was like nerding out earlier to Alexis uh, that. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I have a long history. And I was like, I know this is not necessarily uh, the normal guest. I think I was saying we don't usually have enough literary guests on. We should maybe have some more. Hopefully this will be an, a trend in the direction of having 
more authors, playwrights, so on and so forth on the show. But I'm, I'm for one, and it's my show, so it doesn't matter. I'm very excited to have you on the show, Alexis. Well, thank you, Keith, and thank you, Inez. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I am very happy that you're a closet translation nerd because I am a very much an outgoing translation nerd, and I'm pretty sure it will get quite nerdy, this conversation. Out and proud. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Me too, me too. And I feel, you know, Keith, that, um, well, I don't know, you grew up here, so I'm surprised, like, more people you know are not are not sort of uh, implicit translation nerds, because I feel like people who grew up bilingual just have an appreciation for what it's like to, like, go from one language to another a bit, think- you know? Like, I think, like, my, I, I, I do some translation work, although I don't do, like, literary, but I, like, started, I had no formal training, but I'm, like, the child of immigrants, so I had to, like, write letters for my parents and what, you know what I mean? Like, you just have, it's just, like, translation is just part of your life when you're, like, a good old bilingual, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, yeah, it's, you know, Google Translate can't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. I, I, I think Google Translate can do, like, um, like, when you buy um, a radio and you need to have... I don't know why. It's, well, I don't know. Or buy any equipment, and you just need instructions for the equipment. That's that's mm-hmm. one level of language. But when you're doing something more creative, yeah, 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 is <laughs> is is recommended. I would say. I feel there's also there's the weird uh, weird thing that I feel is ex- not say exclusively Montreal, but like exclusively maybe. Um, it, it's actually it's very Quebecois. Is where you're watching something in French or whatever with the subtitles on. And I feel that every like Montrealer no like recognizes if it's someone from Quebec that did the translation or someone from yes. Europe exactly. <laughs> that did the translation. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you can just be like, you're like, that's not at all the way anyone would write that in my from from my French to my English. But then you're like there's other Frenches to other Englishes. Yes. <laughs> right. <Absolutely. laughs> so it's like you can often when you're following along and you can understand what they're saying literally like literally in French and then you see what someone chose to write in the subtitles I feel that you you can observe the difference of like when, perhaps where the French they thought was coming from and where the English was coming about like yes. it's just a, it's a, a weird thing that I think a lot of people have experienced if they've ever watched something French with the subtitles on like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well yeah. and also sidebar is that plays like Quebecois plays? Wait, how do I say this? Quebecois plays that are translated into English have different, have a Canadian translation, an American mm-hmm. translation, and a British translation, and sometimes even like a different translation for London versus Edinburgh, mm. because the English in each of these places is quite different. And then also, Keith, I just wanted to say to speak to your example from school of of, of like these historical translations. There's kind of like a word of mouth, which is that texts need. Uh, to be translated again about every 20 years because the language changes and to kind of have that contemporary contemporary feel mm-hmm. whereas a work in its original language can be timeless as we cite Shakespeare but mm-hmm. um, but uh, the translations have to be updated yeah uh, well, and what was I think what was interesting though I, like I understand just for in terms of as you said like the language might shift if you want to get the intention and so on and so forth but when also but just the history of like who's in charge of printing and stuff at that point, like like you know what I mean, like that like when you go far enough back into the history, yes. you get to see like literal like world conflict possibly like on display in a translation, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, because of what has to be said in the 1600s 
based on like like again like i said we we're that's why in large part why the course was done on homer was that it was like it was so old that there were like all of these like touchstones of translation that you could then read and then you're trying to figure out okay well this was published at this date with this government are they trying to push an agenda based right. on this translation like exactly. yeah that was it was right. a real weird reading it was, it was it was a fascinating course in general but like just when you start to see how different, like how different a translation can take a text, right? Like um, I recommend everybody while we do this, a, web, a page that I show people when they talk about it is literally the, I'm going to link to it in the blog post. If you go to Wikipedia and you look at the translations of, uh, of Homer's, of the Iliad and uh, the Odyssey, it has the, the first passage of each translation like through the ages and you can see the differences. Like if you look on the column, it has like each notable translation and you can read the, what is it called? The pre preemic verse or whatever. Like the first verse of, of it, you can see in the column, like through the ages, the first verse of each, each book. Like it's, and you can just get an idea of you're like, oh, this is all over the place. Like this is literally different translators translating the first line of text from a core text. And it's all over the map as you like scroll through the like hundred or whatever that are on that Wikipedia page. So it's a good, I guess, like intro to how much a translator brings to a text. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's what makes translation so much fun. It's an art and a science and a craft. That was another question I had. Was this so um, was this always a category for the, the Governor General's Literary Award or is this something that was? Oh, it's been a category for a long time. Okay. Yes. I don't know when it became a category, but it's, yeah, it's been a, a category for a long time. And I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've been aware of it, but I didn't really pay attention to it. <laughs> I didn't really pay attention until I got the nomination. <laughs> well, I usually look at the drama awards, you know, because, because I'm in theater. So I usually like, like to see who's been nominated on the English and the French side in drama. And then, you know, I look at the other categories. And then, of course, if I know one of the translators, but, but I realized that the in the translation section in the category, there sort of seems to be like, one or one book per genre so there's like one book nominated for translation poetry and one you know i'm the theater one and then there's nonfiction and then there's fiction and so it seems to be like a cross-genre um category which i think is kind of fun it's fun but also sort of like tricky because i imagine it's, it's when, when you were saying earlier in the pre-interview that when you're translating a play actors read the word as it is on the page so you have to be like extra i guess well, not to say careful, but like extra, I guess, mindful of the fact that whatever you're translating is going to be spoken word for word. There's no like the actor is now going to do his thing, but it's going to be reading it right off the page. Yeah. So it's like it, it it's very yeah. different to me, at least, than just, say, translating fiction. Right. Knowing that this is I'm translating this to be performed. Yes. It has like a, a different slant on it, if that makes sense. That's why I, I was so shocked and delighted that I was nominated uh, and also it's it's um the the book is two plays for for young audiences mm. and so that's even uh, like a subcategory of theater is theater for you know the, one of the shows towards schools and like a very particular um sort of section like audience of theater and so uh so I was quite excited but there's something very special about the plays themselves. And so um, I have to, you know, obviously share the award 
uh, with the author, Pascal Brillamaz, who is the brilliant person who came up with the, <laughs> these amazing works in the first place. And then I was very lucky enough to to work with him and to work very closely with him. And I mean, this book is like 10 years in the making. Uh, you know, each each play, I mean, I can talk about an odyssey. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you about the journey of each of these plays and how they came, how the translations came to be. And it was really, each took, you know, quite a few years. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with my relationship with Pascal. And uh, I've translated these two plays, obviously, of his. And then, um, and we're really good friends. And, and we've become friends uh, through this process, working together so closely. It's, it's, you really get inside somebody's creative mind in a very uh, um, beautiful way. I, I've never read a text as many times as I read the text I translate. Like I, you know, I have to read the original over many, many times when I have to read my translation over many, many times. And there were actors involved and, and theater companies involved and uh, all kinds of <laughs> workshop processes, which is very common to theater. So they've been vetted. Like we had actors, we, you know, read them and, and give feedback. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, theater is a collaborative art and these, these books, uh, this book could not exist without that, that collaborative process and my, my collaboration with Pascal. So the, another thing I wanted to ask about, like the the books, because uh, they're both, I guess they, they're just described as dark fairy tales in a way yes. with like young, strong female characters in both for very different reasons. One, one is, you, you're gonna correct me if I'm wrong. One, uh, it's Amaryllis and the Little Witch. The, the Little Witch is where she is raised by or lives with ogres. Yes, she's raised by an ogre. By an ogre, okay. And, and yes. And the other one, Amaryllis, am I pronouncing it right? Yes. Yes, nailed it. I can talk about that title because that's that, talk about translation. That's a whole journey. Of coming <laughs> up. Um, yes, so and Amaryllis, it's a descent. It's, see, it's all coming back to classical uh, epic uh, poetry. Um, mm. uh, Amar Amaryllis is basically a descent into the underworld where she goes to uh, free the spirit of her sister who died of cancer. <laughs> and he calls them comedies. They are comedies. They're very deep. What makes them Quebecois, uniquely Quebecois, is that they're very serious plays that are also very funny and very artistically crafted and very theatrical, and they're for kids. And people die. So it's like, that doesn't happen. You know, the beloved children's there. story about a young girl who has to go into the underworld to save her sister who died of cancer. <laughs> but what? they're like amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's so touching about them being nominated for a literary award is that they are literary achievements. And, and, and it's not off, it's not all the time that now that plays are treated like literature, but these are like Pascal's work is literature. And so it's, it's, they can be read. I, not all plays can be read comfortably in a book but these can because it's basically a narrator telling a story and then um and then voices emerge from this narration and this is also what pascal has done so beautifully that's different than I would say a traditional like when you expect a play you have like the name of a character and then a speech and here you have storytelling mm. uh you know, I wanted to know about how, so when we were doing the uh, the pre-interview, I said, like, often when people ask me, they're like, well, like, what do you mean translation is, like, an art form or whatever? I often say when I was telling Alexis, I was like, it's a lot like acting, right? Like, you're, you're taking 
a core text and then you're essentially performing it almost in another language but you bring a lot of a lot of yourself there's a lot of creativity there's a lot of passion that brings in a lot like an actor so my question building off of that idea is how do you get a job uh, to translate is there like essentially is there is there like a translation audition process like will a would did pascal uh potentially like look at other translators was there like a excerpt that you had to translate like is an author involved in choosing like i i'm just wondering sort of how how organic i i'm sure that sometimes it's you're a translator you get handed a text and you yes that's, that's that but i'm saying but in more collaborative spaces is that anything that like has happened is that something that happens in the world of like translation um uh, okay well there's many ways that it happens i mean for sure there can be a theater company that has a play they already want translated and they choose the translator and and so it's kind of like a um a deliberate coupling shall we say um in this case it was that pascal and i had a relationship and then we worked very hard to find theaters to to put on these plays and then uh and then we sent the texts to uh the press the playwrights canada press and annie gibson who's the publisher there got very excited so that so that's how it ended up a book but the way that amaryllis was uh translated was um Oh, this goes, this is a very long story. Please, everyone sit down and make yourselves comfortable. The so, floor is yours. Okay, so I, a long time ago, I don't know, like 15, 20 years, who knows, I was a young playwright. I had submitted uh, some grants in French. I'd had somebody correct them, but uh, so a certain arts council was like, oh, she speaks French and she's an Anglophone. Let's put her on a jury. <laughs> so I was on a jury and that's how I met Pascal. Um, and the second that he opened his mouth to speak to the projects. I was like, this is somebody who I like listening to and who has a very similar aesthetic and sensibility. And we just kind of hit it off, but it's, you know, it's sort of a pressure cooker being on a jury. And uh, and then we didn't see each other again because I don't know if people know this, but often in the arts in Montreal, there's the English side and the French side and never the <laughs> twins will meet. So here, here, you know, we lost sight of each other. I sort of would see his name circulating and, and stuff being put on. And I did see some of his work here and there, but I didn't see him. Um, there was going to be, so Playwrights Workshop Montreal is a service organization that um, sort of fosters uh, playwriting and also translation in Montreal and development of new works. And I'm a member there and I have do a lot of work there. And the artistic director, Emma Tualdo, said, we're thinking about doing a translation unit because we feel that there should be more translators to translate chemical works. There aren't that many. Um, and so Maureen Labonte, who's a very important Canadian theater person that everyone should know for very many reasons. One of, one of the reasons is that she's an incredible translator and, and mentor, translation mentor and teacher. She was leading this unit. And so I was like, Emma, I want to apply, but I don't have a text. She said, oh, I just got this email from Jesse Mill at the CUAD, which is the Centre des Hôtels Dramatiques, which is the sister organization in French. She said it's called Vitarine, it's by Pascal Brulemans. They're looking for a translator. I said, stop, Pascal Brulemans, <laughs> it's meant to be, it's fate. So there's um, a theater company in Toronto that's very interesting, and I, I sort of met with them, and there was some interest, and so long story short, Theatre Direct, which is a, a theater for young audiences, 
commission the translation in the end. So this is like, we're now we're like, I don't know, four or five years into this process. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and Pascal and I are in touch and they're, you know, meanwhile, the production in French has, has toured and had success and won awards and gone to Europe and, you know. And this is still the, and that's still the text he's not happy with? Like, no, like, so now, it, he's happy with it. now, okay, now he's happy with it. Okay. Now <laughs> that's what I'm saying. He's it. just sort of like, I was like, that was. No, no, no. Now he's not, I didn't update his side. No, no. He did the, he did the Quebec version. He's happy with it. It's translated. It's produced. It's touring. It's like okay. acclaimed. Children are coming up and bonding with the actress, you know, the whole thing. So, um, uh, so anyway, so I'm still trying to get this English text done. And anyway, so Theater Direct commissioned the translation, gave us a workshop. We worked with amazing actors. We got great feedback. We did a public reading. They weren't, unfortunately, at the time in a position to commission a production. So we didn't get a production out of it. We had a finished text. So that was still really great. And I, mm -hmm. we were very grateful to them. And I, I really lend it all for her vision and her generosity in doing that. Like I say, it's sort of fallen out of, um, out of custom to do Quebecois plays and translation in the rest of Canada. It was sort of in vogue for a while and it's sort of fallen out of vogue. So it's quite hard to get translations done. Um, you have to really have somebody interested in the work. Mm -hmm. So Linda was very interested in the work, very happy to do it. Couldn't, couldn't see her way to doing a production at the time. Very supportive of the work, still supportive of the work. And in the meantime, now you, have, at least you have something out there, though. It's it's. But it's now we have something we can right. show what it is. We can send it around. Um, the CIA they used the English translation to get like translations in other languages because there are translators around the world who can read an English version but can't read the French version, and so they might even base their translation off the English or whatever. Whereas she tried, you know. They try to That's get it. That's also crazy to me. <laughs> like, yeah, where you're sort of like, they, you have a translation of a translation of a translation, and then you're like. No, I know. Or yeah. what they do is the artistic director likes the English and then finds somebody who could translate from the Quebecois into whatever language. Mm -hmm. But it's the artistic director likes it. So there's a whole like pipeline and, you know, supply chain for these things. Anyway, so in the meantime, Pascal started working on Petite Sorcière, which is his next play for young audiences. And how did that come about? So I was, by then he was like, I want you to be the translator. So this is, you were asking me before, what is, how does it work? So now I'm, I'm, a, I'm sort of Pascal's uh, translator. Usually, or historically, I should say, once an author has a translator, that's their translator. Although in contemporary times, this has changed because if, if a theater company likes a translator, they're gonna go with the translator. So uh, now an author might have many translators, but it's it's still kind of like an uncomfortable or a new thing. So yeah, so, I was gonna I was gonna say I was like if in that relationship because like the, what you're describing with Pascal sounds there like very much like if you're if you're reading a passage and you're trying to figure out like maybe what a character is intending or whatever you can just like call them up you have a great yeah. working relationship it's cool yeah. and you're like well I was thinking this so on and so forth okay that gives me a ton of insight. Yeah. And I was like, I can only imagine if there isn't like a good relationship between author and translator, the translator's just like, I'm just guessing, you know, like, like, which is another thing. But I, as you said, that could be like mildly uncomfortable for the author to be like, you know, this translator just butchered my work. If I'm not, if I'm not involved in the process, I just all of a sudden see my work in another language that I, I don't know, I would feel uncomfortable personally if I wrote something then I had was completely hands off in the translation of it to another language. You know what I mean? It would be like, 
Well, so what's interesting is like Pascal's been translated. I think he does speak Spanish, but I think he's been translated also into German. He doesn't speak German. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, I wouldn't need to be able to read the end of the text, but I think yeah. that it would just I would just want to have a line of communication with the person yeah. translating it. Yeah. Like, if, you know what I mean? Like if it was yeah. just like happening in a, in a complete void. And then all well, of a I sudden, think you you have to. I mean, unless like you're dead, unless you're like Tolstoy or something, and your work <laughs> is getting translated. I think, right? It's like usually, uh, like, like an open relationship, so to speak, like between the people. It's not like you don't just get a. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's what I'm you're uh, well. You're both so okay. So you're absolutely right. The relationship is very close, and I have the same. I have the same but different relationship with the other authors I translate, where there's always a dialogue, there's always a checking in, there's a, because luckily, most of the people I translate, their English is good, like, good, like middling to good. So they can read it and be like, no, that's not what I meant, or I can ask some questions. And you need that because, like, there are lines in the text that are one word, you have to know what that one word is supposed to convey. It could be just, you know, it's like, it's usually the easiest words that are the hardest. Like, anyway, the well, we talked about that at the at the beginning of the interview, right? Like, uh, swearing is 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 always like very unique to translate, and could be that one word, right? Like, you can have like yeah. a single expletive, and then you're just sort of like, okay, what is the full yeah. intention of that it's expletive like, in this moment? Is it a yelled thing? Is it a like muttered thing? Is it supposed to? Is it like sarcastic? Is it ironic? I mean. Anyways, ir- irony is a whole different thing between English and French. Anyways, there's not really irony in French. There's like sarcasm. Too. It's very different. Um, so yeah, no, it's a very close relationship. And then anyways, I'll try to be fast with Little Witch. But Little Witch was different. Had a totally, I'll just say this. And, mm-hmm. and you can ask or not ask. But Little Witch was a totally different journey. Uh, but still very close with Pascal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also I think I did two or three different versions of well, it's so, paid off though. I go clearly <laughs> on account of the 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 nomination for the uh, the Governor General Award this year, which, like, I guess is, I think everybody likes being acknowledged. I feel, and and I was like, I can't imagine, like, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there there are higher honors, but like, it's when you do something that what you're just describing is a years long process between the two pieces, working close with this author, so on and so forth. That I was like, knowing that somewhere like at a at a high level people were like this deserves not just the recognition of the audience or of the reader or whatever else but like we're going to attach a possible hopeful award to it i don't know i maybe i just have like a huge ego or whatever but i was like i feel i would feel extra validated knowing that i'd be like and i'm nominated for an award like <clears throat> i well you know and, and the thing that's so uh yes absolutely and and i i mean i you know, I lived inside these texts for a really long time and I lived inside them with Pascal and I lived them through all the workshops and or productions that we had. Um, Little Witch has had uh, two, produ- like two versions of two different theater companies. And um, uh, yeah, I really lived inside these texts. So it's extremely gratifying to be acknowledged and especially for a literary award. And especially when I looked at the jury, the background of the jury members, these are people who are very serious translators. These are people who really live inside language and they've all they've all won awards before. And and so to be recognized by them was it's a whole different you know thing than being recognized 
even in theater, which is a, its own, you know, its own specific thing. But to be recognized for a literary, for literary merit is very gratifying, I will say. <laughs> it's like you don't like absolutely like like you know like just totally own it um one of the other things that we, we talked about a little bit uh before we hit record was what's the path towards becoming a like employed playwright slash translator like i was like i feel there's a lot of creative types who are like i write and then there's, you know, like not always a, an out or not an out, but like not necessarily a way to elevate it to be like, now this is my employment. So, I mean, I know your path is obviously different. Everybody has different place, worst places to get there. But I was wondering for yourself, like, what was the road of, OK, I'm at a certain level graduated. I'm writing. I'm doing this. I'm probably working a side job. And now how do you get there to I'm doing this professionally and I've turned my passion and creativity into something that I'm now doing for a job. Right. Or at least well, paid for. Like maybe it doesn't feel like a job if it's your passion, but you know. So I would say from what I've observed that even the most established and celebrated artists like have a day job. Like a lot of them are university professors, mm -hmm. for instance, or they're actors or they're something else or they're directors or they're something. Um, Usually they have like three and they run their own company. You know what I mean? Like everybody always does like three jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and then I'm an Anglophone in Montreal. So that already is like, like there are less opportunities here for an Anglophone person in theater, I would say then, then, uh, well, yeah. So there is, I was thinking that that's yeah. like, that's facts. Like it's just so these are the facts. These are just the facts. So here are all the jobs I've done. Let, let me think. So, um, I lived in Victoria, BC for a while. I worked at a heritage site. So like a, like a, like a, one of the first, you know, European houses in uh, BC. I was a tour guide. I wore hoop skirts. So that was one day job. Um, I was, I worked at Avon as a copywriter. You're talking about mm -hmm. for that. Translating and copy. I didn't even, yeah. So I was writing copy and translating copy. Not for makeup, because makeup, that was a senior copywriter. I did, like, the clothes and the toys. Did you even know that they had clothes and toys? I bet you I, didn't. I, I feel like my mom sold Avon, so, yeah, probably yeah. I might have had an idea. Well, of yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, now, um, sticking it to Avon, you were like, I would, couldn't even write the translate the copy no, of the makeup, and look I at me now. I was a copywriter. No, no, they were very nice. They were actually, I had a really nice boss there. I had a super nice boss, and I actually had a lot of fun, but it was way, you know where it is, eh? It's like it's far from downtown. I was going to school and I was like, I can't slip out. Like it was too far. Anyway, so I couldn't stay at that job. So then I worked at Dawson in the learning center, which is actually how I learned English grammar. Super useful when you're a translator, everybody. Um, uh, and then I taught there. I was sort of part-time, full-time in the learning center for a while. Um, then what else have I done? Then I've been a translator. So then I eventually became like a freelance translator editor. Oh, I also worked at IATA for a while as a copywriter that again, very unrelated to other things, but I did know a lot about aviation for a while. Huh. Um, so that was interesting. Um, also they use British, uh, style. So I had to learn British spelling benefiting only takes one P. Um, then oh I was also I was also a very bad copywriter at the mirror I don't I was reliving that experience I was in the like in the 90s when the mirror was still a thing um uh I was very bad at it I'm not copywriting is not my 
my, I mean, copy editing is not my best thing. Anyway, so, but all of these things were, pre- were training grounds for what I ended up doing. So mm-hmm. then eventually I became a freelance translator. So that was mostly what I was doing, what I've been doing for the past, let's say, 15 years. And, and I've worked for all kinds of things. I've also done marketing communications, blah, blah, blah. But then I got into doing translation for the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in all different departments. So this is where I got to practice diff- like translating for different audiences, translating different levels of language, translating very academic language, then translating like for the education department, for the kids and the families. So this was quite fun. Um, and learning about art is always fun and looking at beautiful artworks always fun so that was good um also so i was gonna say, i was gonna say that was like if you're like when you're at the museum are you are you talking about like like translating like the the, the pamphlets or like the description yep. of the piece yep. or all that so i i have my name in some catalogs of course it's like a <laughs> hundred names it's not like you know i was not an important person but i did get to work on these, these texts which was for me super fun um because i really like uh, art and um, uh, stuff, and um, and and it, there was some literary, you know, element to it. And uh, I don't know, I really enjoyed that. And um, so these are all the jobs I've done. I'm sure I've even left some out, everybody. Like I, I've done all kinds of random stuff. In the meantime, I'm not. You notice none of these jobs are in the theater. So I'm trying to also <laughs> keep my hand in the theater. Writing plays takes a really long time. So because of um, Playwrights Workshop Montreal offering this translation unit, this was where I kind of brought together the theater translation, or translation with theater. And then it's only in the past, I don't know, two, three years that I've mostly been making a living from being an artist. And this is, this is because I've had uh, commissions or projects that were funded directly. So like, basically I write, I spend a lot of time writing grants and it's like, it's like buying lottery tickets because you never know (laughs) if your project is going to be the thing that's going to be interesting to anybody at that moment that you're submitting it. And you don't know if the jury's going to be interested in you and what you're doing. And so it's very and you don't know what the other projects are that you're competing against and that might be amazing and way more pertinent than yours so um (laughs) pertinence a very big word for juries everybody um so you know i just kind of have been very lucky and fortunate that i have been um in the right place at the right time and that i've found amazing people to work with and that i've spent uh i don't know maybe now I could say 20 years learning how to be a good grant writer. And so maybe now I'm sort of good at it. I was so, thinking like, that's the, that's the skill. The money skill is being a good grant writer. Like, yeah, I mean, that's what it is. It's like, you know, you know, people who can make things happen, which, you know, after 20 years in this city, I sort of know some people now. So sometimes I might have a good idea and they might be interested in it, but mostly, you know, there are other people also that have good ideas that they might be interested in. So you're sort of like, again, there's like many ideas and few op- few opportunities, but but that's the way it is. And um, and you know, and just trying to keep working. And so, like, I'm very lucky this year, despite the pandemic, a bunch of my research and creation projects were supported. Will they get put on? Will I have new ideas next year? Will any of my grants be successful next year? Will I be working? Because I have a dream 
of working at Note Bene, which is the paper shop on Park Avenue. Oh, if gorgeous. Can, right? <laughs> this is my dream. Is that my, that in my mind, that's like my gang pan job. That's like, if I can't make it, that's where I'm going to be next year, everybody. Although I will have no money left because I will have bought all the pins, all the highlighters, <laughs> and all the, in all different sizes. Um, well, hopefully the staff discount is substantial. Well, this is what I, and also, I mean, exactly. So, um, so, you know, it's like, I'm very lucky and I'm very aware of how lucky I am. I'm working super hard right now to try to like keep, keep things rolling. But honestly, you just don't know if you're going to still be there next year. Like if, will I have any of this next year? I don't know. Um, and uh, and maybe I will be at Note Bene, so that's where you can all find me, maybe <laughs> next year. Um, but that but it's very hard to be a full time artist. I mean, and the other thing that people do is they start theater company, like for a, for somebody in theater, you start a theater company and you pay yourself to be the the head of the company. Yeah. So you have a little, you know what I mean, and so that becomes your day job is you're the administrator of your company, basically, mm -hmm. and then you pay yourself to be the, you know, the artist that creates the work, and then maybe you're making, you know, subsistence for the year kind of thing. Like yeah. it's not the best paid work, but you do it because you like it and you're, you're your own boss and everything. So I'm not the best, basically I just answered you for 20 minutes. All that to say <laughs> is it's not super easy to do it. And it just is like luck and an opportunity. And yeah, that's about it. Sorry, yeah. everybody. <laughs> no, this is what we're here I, for. Uh, yeah, exactly. Did you I, I, find, uh, did you find that it was sort of a, a, particular hurdle in and of itself to transition from translating I don't know like technical text or copy or whatever into the arts or was that because you were involved in the arts yourself like an easy train like it was just working as a translator was the large hurdle rather than like these breaking into these two fields or what have you if that oh that's such a good question I mean on the one hand it it was it felt very inevitable but translating a play is very hard. Like, so it be, it was its own challenge. I mean, I think being a writer definitely helped, but the, the writers I translate don't write exactly the same way I would write in English. You know, like when I, like my translation, you can see is different from, you know, like an English translation I have done doesn't look the same as a text I've written myself. Like they look very different. Um, so it's been, each play I start, it's its own its own challenge its own Everest it I have to teach myself how to translate that text so um you know a big hurdle was just learn because I'm a self-taught I don't have a degree in translation I'm, I'm self-taught um or not self-taught I've been you know mentored but I mean I'm an autodidact in that sense and mm -hmm. uh and then and then yeah working in theater is hard I mean writing translating plays is hard I mean, writing a play is hard. Translating a play is easier in the sense the play is already there in front of you. So that makes it this much easier. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess that that um, my friend my friend who is a translator was uh, was talking about it. at the very least she was like there's ne you're never staring at a blank page, mm -hmm. which which does have its own like. But then at the same time, you're also the, the the page that someone else wrote can be very daunting, at least as for what she says. <laughs> She's like, yeah, it can be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, like I, I like I mentioned before, I do translation. I do translation in my job and also freelancing. But it's all very like I do academic papers or like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like research reports and 
press releases and whatever. So it's always really the only goal is for it to be understandable and for it to seem like it was written by a human and not yeah. like a robot churning out a, a you know English French dictionary. And even that can be like a massive challenge so i can't even you know like you can still be breaking your head over just the one word or whatever so i can't imagine the the literary but it is it feels less like getting writer's block if you can just look at a page full of words you know what i mean there's always somewhere to start or somewhere to move on to or somewhere to like yeah so i find your friend was right (laughs) yeah um like the, th- the thing about translation is that at the end of the day, I can say today I translated 500 words and tomorrow I will translate another 500 words and they are exactly already on the page. And that is mm-hmm. something I can, I you know, that's a concrete goal where it's not a blank page, which it is obviously when you're writing on your, <laughs> writing something from scratch. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. I was say, at the same time, though, are there ever like... Um, and this is just this is just me like imagining the life of a translator. Like I could imagine it being incredibly frustrating to see like a perfect phrase in the other language and not be able to like do it justice. Let's say like it would be its own kind of writer's block in a certain way where you're like, this is so good, <laughs> or whatever in French, that I'm hitting a writer's block to make it work in English. Do you know what I mean? I, I can imagine that being like a frustrating element, like possibly. Absolutely. The thing is, you can you can put a placeholder like often in my translations in progress. I'll have things highlighted where it's like this. This is not working, but it's like I'm trying to get there. And you just you're it's it's as its own kind of writer's block. Yeah. But you can do something. You can have a placeholder. Yeah, you can move but on to the next sentence at least, but they, I feel that that would be like an, a brain worm, just like eating. Oh it. no, it's so there's and there are sentences where it's like you're having the fifth. This is the fifth workshop with the fifth team of actors that have never seen the text before, and you're still talking about that sentence on page fifty, and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> like it just still is not. Two years later, it's still not working. But yeah, do, no, do you know? Do you remember one? I just had a curiosity. I was like, oh, do, okay. do you have like a, a white whale yes. of a phrase? Yes, there was. <laughs> There was, oh, I don't even know if I can find it, but yes, there was like a part in Amaryllis because in Amaryllis, there's like a bunch of levels of language sort of operating at the same time where you have the sister. Is it this one? Yeah, there's something here. I'm going to, I'll read you one, one thing. Am I allowed to read you something? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the narrator says, Amaryllis ran up the hill until she reached the foot of the white tree and raced around it, its massive trunk. Among the millions of ribbons, she recognized a golden thread fluttering in the breeze and instantly knew that it was the one she'd been searching for all along. So why was that? I mean, it sounds, it doesn't sound that hard in English, but there's something about the way that in French, the punch of the punch of the sentence often comes at the top of the sentence and in English, it comes at the end. Um, there's a way that like literary French is uh, very melodic but spoken French is very punchy and so here I had to kind of get the rhythm without adding too many words in a weird way um, and and delivering kind of the punch the way it comes in English but still getting all the information in and getting the rhythm like the rhythm of English and French is not the same like French is very melodic English is a bit like has harder sounds get, getting it to land I don't know the, that was one part there was another part where it rhymes 
because the sister speaks in kind of like, in French, she speaks in Alexandrines, which we don't have in English. The closest thing we have is like iambic pentameter from Shakespeare. So I had to <laughs> take like the Racine Alexandrines and transpose them. Oh my God, there are so many challenges in this text. It was so amazing and so beautiful. That's why even now when I read it, I like, it makes me cry. Um, anyway, yeah. That was I guess, like I said, that that's that's amazing, and and it just like I said, I, I can I can wrap my head around why, like I said, certain passages would just be in its own kind of uh, writer's block. Um, Ines, you have any any questions that are coming to mind right now that you'd like to ask, Alexis? Um, yeah, well, you just brought up rhyme, and I was sort of wondering whether you've, did, like, I can imagine it would come up quite a lot in plays already, but whether you've translated poetry, because that's one that I'm always fascinated by, especially, obviously, poetry with, with a, a rhyme, a scheme. Uh, that and humor, like language-based humor, uh, puns and plays on words and whatever, and whether you enjoy those challenges, whether they sort of drive you nuts, a little bit of both, whether you have, like, you found your own approach to them or each one is. Oh my God. Inez, you have totally, it's those things and the swearing. Those are like (laughs) the hardest. Those are the three hardest things. Um, Jokes are really hard because words don't mean the same thing. And the rhythm is different. Like I said, in English and French, like where, where the joke comes and like where it punches is totally, you have, you basically have to be like, what is the joke? Mm Mm-hmm and who gets the punchline and then you have to rewrite it and make it have the same effect and also even there's different humor across cultures too right where you're like there's straight up you're like this joke won't land in english no matter how well i tell it (laughs) you you have to change also like expressions like like little um little witch resides on this this sort of this joke like in french you say like in English, we say you have a frog in your throat, but in French, they say a chat dans la gorge, which is like a cat in the throat. And that's like a very important image to have. And I was like, so I had to change it to cat got your tongue in English, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. which doesn't actually have the same visual impact. But I was like, well, you need the, I cat. the cat was more important than the, <laughs> than the you throat. Yeah. You have to prioritize. And <laughs> the puns are so hard. Like it just, again, like, you know, it's not the same. So you have to, sometimes what I do is I'll move the pun to another line. So it's still in the color of the language, but it won't be in the same place because it just doesn't work. The rhymes, I usually manage to put them in. It's very hard. Those are the things I spend like the hours on and like the two years on and I come back to and yeah, no, it's very those things are not easy because you want you need the meaning, you need the character, you need the theme, you need the rhythms, you need the sonorities, like you need all of these things happening at the same time. And then you have to prioritize, but you still also have to have them all there. <laughs> it, it, like, yeah, I like I said, just talking from the from the beginning of the episode, I've always been into translation and just hearing it all spelled out just it gives me like an even broader appreciation for what it is you do. And I, and I, I find that it's like the, I grew up religious. Right. And it's just like, it, it, that's one of the other ones, the like Bible being the big one. You're like, everybody views like the Bible as this text that is like so important and has these passages and whatever. But I'm like, all of those passages were translated by someone. I'm like, like, unless you're, unless you're reading it in like ancient Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever, like every Christian on the planet has their Bible and like that 
feels important to them. And I was like, that that's a very, very heavy job that someone yeah. did. <laughs> and talk about a translation of a translation, because it's also it's not even like from the original to like modern English like that. That text has gone through so many. And like what you're talking about, who's in power and what their priorities are like, that is a text that has been sort of interpreted and reinterpreted and had to suffer all sorts of misunderstandings, I'm sure. So, yeah, that's and you have to make that king look good and whatever yeah, yeah, else and, and make true, sure the passages true, that he wants are in there and everything else. Yeah, it's a true <laughs> broken telephone of a book i feel yeah absolutely absolutely but yeah that's it but but that's that's when i say like when people sort of i think overlook translation i'd be like have you read the bible ever you know like you think that happened on its own <laughs> like you know like we're not reading this in original text whatsoever and you're taking this as the word of god right now <laughs> so like someone had to sit there and take like you said translation from a translation from a different ancient Hebrew to old English to whatever other languages it was going down. Like that's a. And across like cultural context, cause that's so big too, you know, like what, like a certain rule might mean, you know, given like the kind of, you were talking like to sheep farmer in the middle East back when Jesus was alive to what, you know, whatever. It's just like all, like all these like references and all whatever. Mm -hmm. It's all very tied to all sorts of contexts. Yeah. Um, so before we get to five questions, though, I did want to ask, uh, just to, to kind of wrap things up, obviously, we are a Montreal based podcast. Uh, I wanted to know, it's like, where did you feel at any point like that, where you grew up, where you lived, where you were there? I mean, you obviously mentioned Dawson, you mentioned just like the, the English French theater thing. Um, was Montreal important, like in sort of like driving you forward, like if being able to work here, being able to stay here, was that something? And you mentioned going to Toronto, but like you said, you wanted to come home a lot. Like I just wonder where the where the city kind of fit in your journey. Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, I would say, I mean, being here, uh, living in these two languages, I think is a uh, it's a gift. It's like I'm a I'm a child of Bill 101. And so when Bill 101 came in, uh, you know, my family was quite upset and they weren't upset about learning French. They were upset that it was imposed. Mm-hmm. But in the end, uh, like I, I benefited from from these two languages. I think it's really uh, enriched me. I love living here. I one of the the deprivations for me of the pandemic is not being able to. I mean, I live in English. My partner is English and my family's in Anglophone. I miss being amongst my Quebecois peers. I miss being at work. I miss being um, in the theater. I miss I miss Quebecois. Like I miss that that is so much, you know, the fabric of my life. Um, being here is super important. It's 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 the you were you were talking uh, before Keith about your friend who moved here from Wisconsin to be a translator and how that was a determining factor in her life and for me choosing to stay here was a very determining factor in my life sure awesome uh Ines, closing questions or do you want to move on to five questions uh i would like to move on i'm going to make one more comment there's less of a question but okay. uh this is this is the thing that i meant to brought up bring up much earlier but it <laughs> it was taking me it's a it's a little short story and that i read sometime this past year and i couldn't remember who it was by and it took me so long that we were sort of past it but i still think it's fun uh and it's in the book by bj novak called uh and another thing i think or something like that 
Uh, and there is this this short story that is all about a translator, and it's called J.C. Auditat, translator of Don Quixote. And I think it's a really fun little short story. The whole book is very, like, tongue-in-cheek, and it's it's not particularly... Like, there is, like, some amount of, like, satire, I suppose, of, like, what a, of what a translator is or their importance. But it's basically about this guy who wishes he was a poet, but he instead makes, like, his fame just by translating works that have very much been translated, like these big sort of whales of, uh, of literature. Um, and, and sort of the punchline of it, spoiler alert, is that he ends up like translating books that are already in English. He just like is modernizing them. But um, something we were talking about earlier, just like the contribution of each translator, although in that story, it's meant to be somewhat of a joke, of course, like, yeah, you know, like, why couldn't you, the way that you're reinterpreting, like, uh, Cervantes's work in Don Quixote, why couldn't you do the same thing to, to, I don't know, to, you know, James Joyce or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a fun story if anyone feels like keeping the translator theme going. <laughs> um, and yeah, let's move Ines's on to Ines's reading questions. list, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the... Uh, all right, so we close off the show, uh, Alexis, with uh, a segment that we call Five Questions, which is we ask the same three questions to every one of our guests. Uh, question four is the guest, a question from our past guests to you, not knowing it would be you. Uh, and then question five is uh, what question would you like to ask to our future guest? So have that, in, and I guess, in the back of your mind that you're going to have to ask a question as the answer to the fifth question. Uh, Ines, do you want to kick it off? Or? Sure. All right. My first question is, what do your thoughts sound like? If they sound like anything. I feel like it's a bit of a leading question. Yeah, it's you know? true. Yeah. Exactly. What describe your thoughts. Or yeah. like, or, and I guess we have to form it as a question. So would you describe your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> would you please? <laughs> exactly. Wow. My thoughts. Uh, my thoughts are nonstop running all the time. Uh, I feel like they look like those, like, um, you know, on TV shows when you, well, I guess it's real life too, but on TV shows where they have like the, you know, they show like your pulse and your heart rate and everything. I feel mm -hmm. like there's always the, my pulse and my heart rate of thoughts running all the time. I feel like they're kind of right now yellow and orange, but it's not always a good yellow and orange. Mm -hmm. um, and they sound like tiptoe through the tulips. Oh, wow. Oh, gorgeous. Are they, I was, I was going to say, is there a language to them and, or is it like in both English and French or? Um, yes, I would say it's both in English and French, but my French is probably needs to be edited. <laughs> That's fine. I, I've, I've, I've said it before. Like I, it's, it's very funny. My, my wife took more, um, I, I did my first year and my first year of elementary school and my second year of high school in, uh, French schools. Uh, my oh. wife did all five years of her high school in French immersion, and she speaks when when she thinks about it or applies it a much, much, much better French than I do. But because I grew up like playing hockey with my like francophone friends and stuff like street hockey and whatever, I have like way less of an accent. So people are like, Keith can speak French fine. I was like, I'm faking it, man. I just have <laughs> the like, like, I just have the kid accent. Like, that's it. Like, I don't know what I'm saying. It's not great French at all, but I'll just throw English words in with the Quebecois accent and it sounds fine because that was the like the language of my friends. Formally speaking, not great. Like, just at all. And do you ever uh, think in French, Keith? Uh, I, I do actually, like sometimes if I, if, I, if I'm at a meeting in work, uh, and it's like the entire meeting is occurring in French, I'll, I'll start 
almost automatically speaking in French. And then my entire thought process comes in French. And it's like, there's no more like, it's, it's not me translating my thoughts from English to French. It's just like, I'm now thinking in French. So if I'm That's... completely surrounded by French, I do shift in it. It's also like you said, though, not great French that's going on in my brain. <laughs> that's very convenient, though. But it's fun, though. I, I remember like when I had just started learning English and I really I spoke it very poorly and I had a hard time communicating. But I found that it started like kind of taking over my thoughts. Like there was something that I found so like compatible about English with my like internal like processing somehow that mm -hmm. I found it very like natural to think in English, even like long before I could really like speak it. So I think it's it's fun how thoughts do that sometimes. Even though, yeah, like I'm sure if someone could read my thoughts, they would have been like, that needs that needs some work. <laughs> First pass on Ines's thoughts and needs some rewrites. Yeah, someone, uh, we need an interpreter over here. But to me, it made perfect sense, of course. That's all that matters. It's your thoughts, man. Yeah. Uh, question number two. Uh, what was your favorite thing to eat as a child? And... Uh, Specifying could be a snack or a meal, like some people have asked. So, uh, yeah. I'm not, when you right when you said it, I had a flash of grilled cheese sandwiches. And that's the answer. That's 100% it. I think well, with, with tomato soup or just like is that's it a side? What I'm thinking. I think it's with tomato soup, but then a close second is obviously French fries. Mm, yeah. I don't know if this is a thing or not, but as a child, I always had a pickle on the side like a of a grilled cheese sandwich like my oh, mom was like I, oh. I don't know why I just saw you meant like always like you just always had a pickle like <laughs> all <candy>. meals <laughs> had a pickle on the side no but for I, grilled cheese it was like my mom would be like after after school or whatever if I was like hungry was it dinner time grilled cheese sandwich and you're like grilled cheese sandwich and pickle and then it's like that was the plate like I don't know if she needed the garnish <laughs> to like bring color to the, the whole thing it makes sense right it's like a it's like a note of acidity just like ketchup or tomato soup and it's like but yeah. it's not as sweet if you're not into that i think okay. it's a good pairing i, I and I, your mom. <laughs> it was great and like I, i've numerous like my my wife and girlfriends or whatever in the past are just sort of like they're like oh i mean grilled cheese sandwiches like and a pickle and they're like what are you even saying i was like <laughs> i was like they don't they go together <laughs> like, i love uh, that um, but yeah, but so did, did you do the tomato soup and grilled cheese, Alexis, or was it just the sandwich? Or I feel like the tomato soup was there sometimes. Yeah, that, it, that's more of a meal. That's less it's of like. A, meal, but I I just I, I initially I just pictured the grilled cheese and it was cut in triangles. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's important. I that's think. very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Question number three. Okay, um, so what is the best or worst thing about growing up? Oh. You do and or, or you can do or, it's up to you. Well. Or you can plead the fifth, you know, I don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I love, that, that's, a, these are such good questions. Um, well, I mean, the best thing and the worst thing are the same thing, which is basically being an adult. And... <laughs> You think when you're a kid that all you want to do is be an adult so that you're the master of your own destiny. But then actually being the master of your own destiny is kind of the worst thing <laughs> in the sense of how hard it is. Yeah. Also, like a lot of paperwork and like clipping nails, like a lot of like not not that questy like stuff. <laughs> not like this magic thing where you fly off into like the sunset. It's mostly what Inez just said. Paperwork, emails, 
it's and yeah it's always it's, it's also the the like if you don't do something like it just won't get done you're just like like that. you know like i was like i feel that like if you're if you explained like taxes to like a 14 year old they'd be like yeah and if i just put it off long enough like my mom will do my taxes mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever you know but you're like no that's never gonna happen you'll now owe yeah. back taxes or whatever you, you like, don't even <laughs> have to you don't even have to get that complicated like laundry is you know what i mean sometimes you're like why am i yeah. out of socks and you're like oh right i'm that's me yeah. <laughs> i'm the person <laughs> like planning meals and especially with the pandemic it's just like I don't want to plan another meal like I don't want to have to think about what I want to eat like you know my mom just went grocery shopping or my dad and there was food and then there was a dinner and I didn't have to think about it it just happened it was and if magic there was something, and if something that you wanted wasn't there you just like loudly complained and then eventually it like showed up <laughs> but you know what's funny about being an artist an adult artist is that there are moments when this is replicated and it is called the artist residency oh. and this is why artist residencies are basically they're like lifeboats for artists because for that week or that two weeks you're kind of taken care of in a certain like maybe not everything is taken care of but something is taken care of and that yeah, is and, what- then, and then all you have to worry about is your homework exactly <laughs> I was gonna say I was like, yeah, I guess that's the like the modern take on like having like a patron or whatever, like where you're just sort of like, oh yes, this is my like artist or whatever. Yes. I just I just pay him like a, a salary or whatever, and he makes paintings. <laughs> it's just like, I feel like that that that's my understanding of like Mike, Michelangelo's life was just like <laughs> he just got to paint and like just had salaries and stuff taken care of by like. By the church or whatever, like that's it. Exactly. I mean, it it does sound like it was quite hard though to please the patrons, but at least you had one. So yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Can that I can also imagine. That's just uh, can get to it. Um. All right. I just wrote not Amy, but I have. So our last guest was a a Montrealer who also was back in Montreal, but now he's back in LA. Uh, because he was just talking about how you have to often end up leaving Montreal as much as he would love to stay. Uh, Pierre-Luc Rioux, who is a guitarist for the band Child, he also does uh, the studio work for, like, Justin Bieber and stuff. Like, he's all over the map as a guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, also, has... sorry to interrupt, but I believe he's a guitarist for the band Child. Yeah, exactly. There's three eyes <laughs> in it. <laughs> hey, he just, he just awesome. said Child. So I was like, <laughs> okay. we asked I him, like, how long do you pronounce it? Child. <laughs> I love it. Okay, hilarious. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he had a very specific question, but there's a there's an unwritten B part. Uh, the very question is, where's the best ice cream in Montreal? Because uh, oh, <laughs> he's a big ice cream that. fan. Where's that? Ripples. Ripples. Agreed. Yes. Yes. No. Thank you. Podcast. So then you have the answer. We don't need the B part. The B part was, if you didn't have a best ice cream, it was where's the best? Like, where's the thing in Montreal that you would recommend to someone? Like, you have to eat there. Like as a. Oh. Oh man, I feel like I had an answer to that, and then it just went out ripples, of my head. Ripples, it's ice cream. So. <laughs> I mean, it's ripples. I mean, what are you gonna say? I mean, it's bagels, right? Bagels. And then I always, when when I'm meeting people, I always take them to the diner, which is now near Ripples, which is Vieux Saint Laurent, because it's very hard to go to a diner. Like diners don't really exist in the way they used to, but that's still a diner. You know. Good question. Good so, answer. I'm sure there's a um, way better answer than that, but anyway. No, the part of these is like first thing that pops <laughs> to your head. Like that's it's if you overthink mm-hmm. them, then lightning round. Exactly. 
And now question five, uh, without knowing who our next guest will be, uh, what question would you like to ask to a complete stranger? Okay, well, it might repeat your question three, but it, this was what flashed into my mind when you mentioned it, is that what did you want to be when you were five? And it has to be when they were five, because five is when you change from like the toddler mind, which is kind of the magical mind, to like the very practical mind. So what did they want to be when they were five? I was, um, I've, and it's weird because I almost did this for real. Like I did, uh, <laughs> I briefly was a substitute teacher in elementary school, uh, but I was just like, at, at age five, I was like, I'm going to be a teacher. And like that, exactly. that goal carried through like part of my education. And then, like I said, while I was studying at Concordia, I was actually a substitute teacher in elementary school while I was going through my courses at Concordia. And then I, having lived it, I didn't want to do it anymore. But like, that was like, it was I very young when I wanted to do it. And I don't know if I was just like, I thought I was a creative child, but I was just like, if it was just a job that I observed, or I was like, this is part of my life. I see teachers, like, this seems cool. Like, I think maybe that they were just like, around just and in charge also. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, it's like, you know who makes the rules? The teacher. If I was the teacher, I'd make the rules. Like, I just like... <laughs> I'll have the coolest classroom in the world. Like that I no idea why my lack of imagination put it that I literally like and nearly became my actual life's goal. <laughs> like was the one job I had been exposed to at five. I was like that one. Like <laughs> without shopping around. Good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's it. Like I, I wanted I wanted to uh be a, a children's uh author. Oh, yeah. Similar, similar vein though. You're just sort of like, I like these books. I would yeah, like yeah. to write them. <laughs> That's That's so cool. Cool. I think I understand my audience. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Huh, so it's, that's very interesting. So I didn't when I asked the question, I didn't think of what my answer was, but my answer was probably I have a I have I haven't looked at it, but my mom kept a scrapbook. Apparently I narrated screenplays to her where I was the director and the producer, and I knew the word producer when I was five. Oh, That's weird. It's very impressive because it can mean so many different things, I depending know. on what like <laughs> what artistic field you're talking about. Is, is it radio? Is it a play? Is it a comedy show? I still don't quite know what all the producers out in the world do, you know? A lot of, lot of different producers out there. Uh, <laughs> And, and also, and also, you putting yeah. S and I to shame because we were just like we were just trying to find a job in the world around us. You were trying to make movies. <laughs> like, I know, but then what's funny is I'm not making movies. I'm doing everything, like yeah. But, oh, you're, should I just put? You're I making could acoustic movies, you know. I'm making That's acoustic true. movies. Yes, I have found different ways to express myself and write scripts. It's still a script, so. That's true. But. So yeah, not too too far. Um, so yeah, so there, I guess there. We mentioned it like in passing. Uh, you are a playwright in your own right. Uh, you said you have a couple of things that are coming out that you're working on. If you want to tell anyone, how do how do we how do Keep we up. find your work? How do you <laughs> right? find me? So um, right now, the best I mean, the best way is on Facebook um, because that's where I announce all my work. I also have a theater company that is like right now a bit dormant but it's compositetheater.com composite theater all one one word dot com mm -hmm. um and i'm you can also find me on the playwrights uh guild of canada website i'm all over the place i'm, I'm around 
Um, but yeah, maybe Facebook for now is a good one. And I'm hoping to make an alexisdiamond.ca website, but I'm still working on that, um, to try to collect all of my projects in one place. Um, the two things that are coming up, I'm working on two plays in French, which I'm co-writing with a Francophone theater artist in Montreal. One is called Faux Amis with Hubert Lemire. It was presented, a first draft was presented a couple of years ago at the Demi Louis Festival. We're still working on it very actively. We just had like a Speaking of residencies, we were supposed to go to Banff last year, and of course that was postponed. So we just did a virtual residency. So we're still working on it. And then I'm working Way on something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So virtual residency was not quite the same, but still yeah. good. Um, and uh, so that's going well. We should have a reading in the, you can take a, uh, keep your eye out. We should have a reading in the next season, hopefully. And um, I'm working on something called La Renzinga, une épopée avec Tatia. Tatiana Zinga-Botao and Marie-Louise Bibish-Mumbu, which will also, I will not reveal where at this time, but will soon be uh, before audiences, shall we say, oh. um, in one form or another. And uh, so these also are more in, I would say, a storytelling theatrical vein. Awesome. Uh, Ines, do you have anything to shout out, by the way, before we uh, before we wrap things up here? Um, you can catch my articles occasionally coming out in the Beaverton. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's it. That. And that's this it. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Alexis, thank you so much. That was uh, a lot of fun. That was, like I said, I think it was a little different for our listeners from just listening to comedians and musicians, but I think it was really, really fun. Try something new. Yeah, exactly. Read a book. And I mean, also, I guess like the, and this is something I can I have a hard time practicing what I preach in this moment, which is to go see French theater. Like I often go see English theater in the city. I do not go see enough French theater, and I really have no excuse because I'm bilingual. So let's do it together, Keith. Uh, we'll do it. We should all go together, and then we can talk about it after. We can be all the right. annoying phones. Agree. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about this French theater in English. Yeah. <laughs> loudly while the play is happening exactly. you know <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> uh, well, and as soon as the ba and q catalog is back online i will reserve the book and if they don't have it i will demand that they get it because they always get whatever i ask for them oh yeah. wow Very thank you both so much and and i i appreciate it uh the invitation and i i appreciate uh the audience indulging you in this new direction <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Hey there, loyal listener who listens to the show all the way past the closing credits. Um, Thank you for listening to Go Plug Yourself. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, If you enjoy the show, I cannot stress this enough. Please tell people about it. We don't really have a budget for marketing or fancy Facebook ads or putting up billboards on the street, uh, we really have to rely on word of mouth, which uh, basically means that if you listen to the show and you enjoy the show, please uh, share it, link it, uh, tell your friends about it, say, hey, there's this show called Go Plug Yourself. They talk to Montrealers or people that have stuff going on in Montreal or uh, just people that have stuff 
to uh, promote that we kind of care about. We can we can go outside of Montreal if we want to. Um, yeah, so just tell tell people about the show. It's a it's a fun show. We we like doing it a lot. We've done it for over two hundred episodes, and it's in large part thanks to support from uh, people like you. Um, if you want to support the show at all, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash 9to5cc and uh, throw a couple bucks our way. It really helps with uh, the hosting fees for the most part. We're really not trying to make a profit on this. Um, and also, if you want to be a guest on the show or you know someone who might uh, want to be a guest on the show, you can uh, contact us either on Facebook or on Twitter. There's a bunch of ways to find us uh, and uh, and let us know. And if the scheduling and the timing and everything works out, maybe you can be the next person who uh, comes on the show and... Uh, plugs something a uh, big thank you as always to leland beckman and oral turpitude who provided our theme songs and of course a thank you to uh, all of the hosts that we have on the show uh walter j ling who is technically retired but still sometimes hosts uh christopher vendito lawrence corber and uh, ines anaya uh, all are all amazing co-hosts and you should support them and their comedy and uh and all of that uh thank you for listening thank you for choosing go plug yourself uh as one of your from the millions of podcasts and have a beautiful day. Thank you. 905.cc Podcast, blogs, and comics. Made in Montreal since 2011.